to open up God's Word and to see what He has for us, regardless, uh, you know, regardless of what happens with a job or not. Praise the Lord that His eternal Word speaks, and we get the pleasure of looking at it here today. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you guys, um, and I look forward to getting to know more of you in an ongoing way. Already in the ACE class that I've been attending, in the Biblical Counseling class, it's very clear that there is a hunger for God's Word. Even this morning, there's awesome discussion. Uh, so it's super encouraging to think about what the Lord has been doing in the past through Evergreen, and then also to think about what the Lord will do in the future. It seems that with every significant life event comes renewed hopes. Just look at social media. You know, someone might celebrate a birthday, and that person might declare... All will be better than last year. Lose a few inches. Make a ton more money. Be a more beautiful me. Now, I'm not knocking goals. I myself personally set goals and then I review them. So where the goal and the effort to reach that goal are meant for good, I'm going to say, you know, praise God, let's do it. I want to encourage it. But if a new year of life and greater human effort is what we think we will ultimately need to deliver us from our problems, then, friends, we are in for a rude awakening. If you think about it for a moment, how is it that human strength, human goals, and human effort be what ultimately delivers us when we humans are the very reason we got into trouble in the first place? Just turn on the news to see that we have problems, whether in society We can look at our next-door neighbors, and if we know ourselves well enough, we have problems too, don't we? Now, I don't intend to unnecessarily discourage anyone this very Sunday. On the contrary, on the Lord's Day, I want to be a herald of good news. It's just that the good news is not finally that man is the answer to man's problems. The ultimate answer to our greatest problems is, in fact, the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who alone can bear our hopes. And he, friends, is the good news. Let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles, join with me to turning to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And if you are visiting with us, you don't have a copy of the scriptures, the verses will be projected there as well. Just like Rocky, I love hearing the turning of the scriptures. You know, asking you guys to open up your Bibles promotes biblical literacy, which is always a good thing. And as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background. This is, of course, returning to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when, when it comes to the message of the Gospel, there is only one. There is only one Gospel of Jesus Christ, and Gospel means good news. There's only one good news, and that is in Jesus. But in the Bible, there are four Gospel accounts written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each book emphasizes certain, a certain aspect of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished in his life His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. And together, these four gospel accounts give us a beautiful portrait of who this Jesus is. And these gospel accounts help us ask and answer the question, who is this Jesus? And another one, why is his life and death and resurrection truly good news for us today, for all times And keeping in tradition with Evergreen, let's go ahead and stand, and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Let's stand now in honor of God's Word. Then 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Please be seated. Our main idea, if you're taking notes this morning, which I encourage you to, is Christ is the righteous one who alone can bear our hopes. Christ is the righteous one who alone can bear our hopes. We're going to take that idea and break it into two points. Point number one, Christ is the righteous one. And then point number two, who alone can bear our hopes. To answer the question, who is Jesus? We see first that Christ is the righteous one. Point number one, Christ is the righteous one. You look there at verses one and two and we get the setting here. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We see from the get-go here that God has a plan. And in fact, he is going to prove that Christ is the righteous one, and will indeed remain the righteous one in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you are exploring Christianity, you've not heard the gospel before, now you're visiting with us. It's really important here to, to notice here and to know that he is on a rescue mission. Jesus is on a rescue mission. His mission includes to be for sinners what they cannot be for themselves and to do for sinners what they themselves cannot do for themselves. See, the Bible says that God created man and woman in the beginning to be in a relationship with Him, right? A perfect, loving relationship. There is no sin. Living with Him underneath His rule, according to His Word, delighting in their God and Creator. But the Bible says that man and woman sin against God. Adam and Eve, they sin against God, really because they want to be gods unto themselves. They want to live autonomously. And so when their dear loving father draws near to them, they tell him to get lost. And so they sin against God and rebel against him. And uh, folks, you know that if God is really the only king, which the Bible says he is, and I certainly believe that he is, to set up their own kingdom in God's kingdom is what? It's treason punishable by death. The Bible says even death in eternal hell, eternal judgment. But here we get a picture of who this God is. Where God, sorry, where people created the problem, God himself provides the solution. Being the loving God that he is, he sends out of mercy and compassion, he sends his eternal son to take on flesh to live the righteous life that we should have, and then to bear the judgment that we had earned for ourselves. And on the cross, 
He remains the perfect sacrifice, the substitute, bearing the wrath of God that His people deserved. Bearing the wrath of God on behalf of all who would ever repent of their sins and believe. And folks, three days later, He gets up from the grave showing everyone that death, the death sentence, no longer hangs over our heads if we are His people. On the cross, death, sin, and Satan were defeated. And those who turn from their sin and believe on God, they are forgiven. They are reconciled to their maker where they're reestablished in their loving relationship with God. They're adopted into his family and they know their savior. That's important background there. And in our passage today, again, Jesus is on his rescue mission and God is proving that Jesus is his chosen one come to take away the sin of the world. And so, friends, this test is no accident. He is being led into the desert by the Spirit, you see there, by the plan of God. Similar to Job, if you're familiar with Job, Jesus will prove to the watching world and the devil himself that the best place to be in, earthly place to be in, is with God, in his will, obeying him, heeding his word. But, friends, like no other man, Jesus, the God-man, will remain perfectly righteous. While God has a plan to display Christ's righteousness, the devil, make no mistake, has a plan to destroy it. The devil has a plan to destroy it. And this, friends, is what undergirds Satan's attacks on Jesus. He, that is Satan, tries to make this obedient and righteous son a disobedient son and so derail the plan of God to save sinners all by his grace and mercy. It's interesting, if you look there, as he begins his assault on Jesus... He begins with this interesting question there, verse 3, verse 5. You can go ahead and skim those. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, it's an interesting question, right? Satan is not ignorant. He knows who Jesus is. He's a spiritual being. God himself is a spiritual being. He knows that God, that Jesus is God's chosen one who possesses all rule, all authority. He is the Messiah. So he knows. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe. So they have right theology. He knows who he is, and we, friends, do too. In the passage right before ours at Jesus' baptism, you look, go ahead and look there at Matthew 3, 13. This is the baptism of Christ. The heavens open. The Spirit anoints Christ for his future public ministry. And what does God the Father declare? He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God has declared what is true. This is my beloved son. Implication is righteous son, obedient son, who has come to do the will of God. God declares what is true. And you look here in our passage, this is the very thing that Satan seeks to make untrue. This is why Satan sets his scope on Christ, on Jesus, the son of God. He is the opposer. Satan is the opposer, the accuser, the slander, according to scripture. And here his goal again is to derail the son from his mission and to take him out before the cross, making the beloved son a disobedient son. Let's look at these temptations in turn here. Let's look at these temptations in turn. For the first onslaught, we can start there at verse number two. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What exactly is Satan going after here? 
on one level, it's clear Satan goes after Jesus' physical hunger, right? That's obvious. He was, 40, he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Luke says, not eating anything. So Jesus was obviously hungry. But is Satan's ultimate aim to, you know, get Jesus to create some food or to be satisfied in terms of his stomach? The answer is no. I mean, Jesus creates food later on for the crowds. There's no problem with that. There's no sin there. And then there's no problem with eating unless, of course, you're eating, you're doing so uh, without self-control. You know, you're doing so as a glutton. So what exactly is going on here? We can look at Jesus's response, verse 4. Jesus responds, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So while this occasion has to do with Jesus' physical hunger, Satan's test, you see this, Satan's test has more to do with spiritual satisfaction. It has to do with Christ's joy in the will of God according to his word. Satan here wants to turn Jesus' joy and satisfaction in God into dissatisfaction with God and his will introducing, or at least seeking to introduce this doubt and to tear apart the relationship between Jesus and the Father. It is as if, Satan says, if you are the Son of God after all, aren't you entitled to a little bread in the midst of all of this wilderness suffering? Isn't all of this difficulty beneath you? Are you not the Son of God? It's like he knows God is a God of steadfast love and mercy, but... Satan here makes him out to be this miserly, divine grump. This is not the first time Satan sought to cast shade on God's character, is it? He does this in effort to steer God's people's hearts away from him, right? Dissatisfaction. Take Adam and Eve, for example. Though God had given them every single thing they needed, everything in this amazing, wonderful, most beautiful garden that you could imagine, Satan then slithers up and slanders God making him out to be this, again, stingy, miserly creature. And he does so getting Adam and Eve to focus on the very one thing God said that they could not have. And in their dissatisfaction with God, they rebel. Adam becomes a disobedient son. And then take Israel in the Exodus. Even though God was right, fulfilling his promises according to his steadfast love and mercy, delivering his people out of 400 years of captivity under Egypt, bringing them into the land of promise through the Red Sea where he himself parted the waters into the desert where he miraculously sustains them with birds and bread from heaven. Still they grumbled against God saying, take us back to Egypt so we can enjoy our Egyptian Wagyu steaks. Not the Wagyu steaks, but they do cry out for meat, pots, and vegetables in Exodus 16.3. And Israel, also called God's son in Exodus 4.22, showed themselves again to be a disobedient son as they didn't want God over them. It's incredible here that Jesus himself, as he is in his temptation or in the struggle, Satan's trying to lure him. Of course, there's no desire for sin in his heart, but yet he's being tempted. Satan is luring him with certain things. Even as he himself is in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting, depending on God, he's thinking about Israel's experience in the desert and their 40 years of wandering. Verse 4, he says, It is written, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word of God, every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is from Deuteronomy. You guys know what Deuteronomy, what Deuteronomy is about? 
where Israel is as Deuteronomy is formed here. All of Jesus' quotations in our passage comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a book of Moses' sermons to the people of Israel after having already wandered for 40 years. They're on the very cusp of the promised land, right? Israel knew that they were a disobedient people. And there stands Moses delivering the word of God, preparing them to enter in to the land of promise. And he reminds them of how God answered them by his grace through those very promises. We live not merely on food, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, it seems, by all accounts, right, he seems to be meditating or knows, has internalized Israel's experience in the desert. But Satan has it in for it, doesn't he? He's not messing, messing with mere man. He's not messing with a mere nation of Israel. He's messing with the God-man, the Son of God. And again, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is so here satisfied in God alone and on every word that comes from the mouth of God, even in God's will that includes his own suffering. Ultimately in the cross, he is able to say right before his crucifixion, not my will, but yours be done. Christian, do you see that this seemingly little request of Jesus to turn these stones into bread is evil. Do you, do you see this? Satan is trying to bring division between Jesus and God the Father and to obscure the character of God, turning Christ's satisfaction in God the Father into dissatisfaction. And maybe, just maybe when, when Jesus is confused, so he hopes, and when he believes the lies, then there is success. Mission failure, mission is derailed. But of course, Jesus knows the love of the Father from before all eternity. He is the eternal Son after all. Of course, nothing will separate the Father and the Son and the Spirit from their intimate fellowship that they had from eternity past. And so Christ obeys, testifying to the fact that even in suffering and difficulty, living with the loving God and under His rule, according to His Word, is the best earthly place to be in. And so it brings true satisfaction. This is what brought satisfaction to Jesus even in death friends, as God would raise him from the dead three days later and restore him to the glory he had in the beginning, just as he promised. So Satan's first attack fails. But look what happens there in Satan's second onslaught, verses 5 to 7. His, on his attack on Christ gets more intense. Verse 5, then the de devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Here, the devil brings Jesus to stand on what is most likely the southern wing of the temple, the highest point of the temple. From this point, Jesus can look out. He can look out and see the beautiful rolling hills, but then he can also look down hundreds of feet. One estimate is 450 feet. That's 37 stories about to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. How does Satan test Jesus? Look again at both Satan's attack and Jesus' response. Verse 6. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him it is also, also written, do not test the Lord your God. This test is not about, this test is not about whether or not God could rescue Jesus, right? It's not about God's ability, what he tempts Jesus to do is more serious than the first test and kind of builds on the same thing. He's, he's 
getting Jesus. He's testing Jesus to doubt God's character, to doubt God's trustworthiness. If the first test is a test of satisfaction in God, this here is a trust test, trusting specifically in his word. Satan here quotes some very powerful verses from Psalm 91, and the entire psalm, I encourage you to go ahead and read it later on in the afternoon or something, the entire psalm is all about how God is faithful to those who trust him. Absolutely faithful. Satan knows this. It's like Satan says, okay, Jesus, so you believe in this word of God that you say? You know this very passage. Of all people, you, the Son of God, trust in God, the Father, right? Well, he did say he would give his angels to save his people, right? And his angels would bear you up. Well, then go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it, given that you are his beloved Son. You see that again, throwing shade, suspicion here. Christian, it's very important to pay attention to Satan's mode of operation, how he attempts to devour Christ is certainly one way in which he seeks to devour us today by getting us to doubt God's love, specifically as communicated in his promises and in his word. Notice the progression, right? In the first test, Satan tempts Jesus, but then Jesus responds, I'm happy in the will of God in this trial, in this desert, going to the cross. I live on the word of God. And then Satan's very next attack here in Matthew, he tries to get Christ to question this word. Okay, you're good with the word of God. You're going to submit to him. Do you really think he's going to keep his promises? You think he's really going to take care of his son? Then test him. Similar to the Garden of Eden, Satan twists the word of God, attempting to sow seeds of division, introducing doubt over the character of God, his goodness, his trustworthiness, his loving kindness. But who is stronger? We've already seen that it is Jesus. Jesus says, he responds, it is also written. Don't you love that? Friends, if you ever struggle with various doubts about God's character as Satan, evil is trying to weigh you down, get, get you to doubt God's character, right? Follow Jesus' example. Jesus simply says, well, let me tell you other words of God. Satan has a crooked use of God's word. Jesus battles with a right use of God's word, with faith, with trust in God's character. He uses Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? That's quoted by Satan. Do not test the Lord your God. Sadly, testing God was a pattern for the Israelites, if you guys remember, even in the Exodus, right? God, they judged God to be God who abandons his people, God who abandons his promises, God who is not faithful even though they had just seen him go to battle with Pharaoh, who was considered a god, you know, their pantheon of gods. God, Yahweh, Lord over all, just did battle against Pharaoh and destroyed them. And yet they still question God and judge him to be the one who abandons. Will God really do what he promised? But again, where Adam and Israel fails, Jesus here succeeds. He sees no need to test God because he knows and he's absolutely certain that God is who he says he is. That he is, in fact, a God of steadfast love and mercy who can, in fact, be trusted, even in difficult circumstances. Just as Jesus resisted turning stones into bread, so he resists here, knowing that God fulfills every single one of his promises in his time. And so he declares, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Things escalate. 
You look at Satan's final onslaught found there in verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. Here the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain where Satan puts on something of an exclusive invitation only parade of kingdoms right before Jesus' eyes. Satan goes all in and he shows us all of his cards and he offers it all to Jesus Christ if you would worship me. Imagine this test, guys. Imagine this test. Satan tempts Jesus with the world's kingdom, immediate satisfaction in power and glory and ownership and dominance. Never mind the long-term consequences. I wonder, what is it that Satan tempts you with? He holds out to you and promises a certain false something. How long might you look at this parade of fantasy? Maybe your mind drifts off into fantasy land, fantasizing about everything you could do, everything you could be, all this, the world's kingdoms and their splendor, if you would worship me. In your mind, would you try on the suit, so to speak, and see how it fits? Maybe as you look in the mirror, you wonder, How long does the devil's deal stand? But this is not how Jesus responds. What does he say there in verse 10? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13 Jesus knew what the devil's sales pitch was aimed at. Life is not about gaining kingdoms and their glory, but it is about giving glory and honor and power to the one who truly possesses it. I imagine here as Jesus was genuinely being tempted, of course, there's some sort of mysterious aspects to all of this because there is no sinful nature in Jesus, but yet the devil is trying to lure him. But I imagine here as Jesus is is being tempted, he is looking straight past the devil's charade to see pure folly. I mean, here's the devil attempting to give away what he doesn't own in order to get what he doesn't deserve, that is worship. Friends, that's pure folly. But in contrast to the devil baiting Jesus with the kingdoms and their glory, here stands the Savior who left infinite glory for the joy set before him. Remember Philippians 2.5? Though he was in the form of God, he did did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? Since he was God, the Son, the eternal Son, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He empties himself by the taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of of men. Satan offers Christ that which Christ already owns. Do you see that? In terms of Philippians 2, this is the very reason why he does not see equality with God a thing to be grasped. He already owns it all. Christ, who already has, has no need to grasp after more. But it's because he possesses it all. He therefore can truly and freely leave it all to fulfill his rescue mission to save sinners, to live his life entirely in the shadow of the cross, 
knowing that even after his crucifixion, again, you guys know, we already talked about this, he will be raised in power, that God himself would raise him in power, seat him at the right hand of God, where all things will be in subjection to him, and where he will receive the glory he had from the beginning. Finding his satisfaction in God, trusting in God, living to serve God, Jesus resists the devil and proves to the world he is, in fact, God's beloved Son, Christ the Righteous One. Verse 11, look there, it concludes. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him, ministering divine comfort to him. Interesting, isn't it? The very thing that Satan tried to get him to test. Here's God seemingly fulfilling his promises to him, sending divine angels to minister to Christ the Lord and Savior. As this applies to our Christian lives, there is so much great hope here as we look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And then, of course, as we set it in light of the picture of God's plan of redemption as a whole, we want to spend the rest of our time here briefly focusing on why it is Christ alone who can bear our hopes. This is point number two here. Point number two. Christ alone can bear our hopes. And this really is application. There's so many different ways to apply this. And I pray that you guys, as you, you know, scatter and then you meet up in your life groups, I pray that this would be helpful for you guys. You can take application so much further as you talk and discuss and stick your faces in the word of God. First, first, Christ alone can bear our hopes because he alone can deliver us. Christ alone can bear our hopes because he alone can deliver us. He is our deliverer. Christ is our deliverer. We can easily miss this. But friends, the whole entire reason why Christ was in the desert battling and fighting and resisting Satan was to free his people who were underneath the power and tyranny of sin and Satan, as the book of Romans says, that all man, since Adam and Eve, are under the tyranny and the power of sin. Who was able to rescue us? Who was able to battle against sin and Satan? Friends, it is Christ. He alone is able, and so he is our deliverer. Christ does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Given our sinful nature and our sinful actions, it is impossible, right, as we mentioned earlier, to rely on sinful man to deliver sinful men. We are the problem, which is why God in his amazing grace sends Christ, the eternal Son, the God-man, Christ takes on flesh and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In his strength, there is deliverance. In his righteousness, there is deliverance as he resists sin and Satan and fights for righteousness. He succeeds, right? He wins for his people deliverance from the power of sin. Christian, this is you. How is it that you are freed from the power and the tyranny of sin? Finally, we have a Savior that is Jesus in his life and in his death and in his power we have deliverance Christian in light of your own sin and weakness and inability do you find yourself praising God for Jesus Christ the perfectly righteous one perfectly holy perfectly able to do for us what we could not cannot do for ourselves Friends, you realize that you have a strong warrior for you. He fought for and lived in righteousness for you, Christian. So he could lead you by the hand in the path that he himself created. And in our weakness, we see so clearly that he is strong. Christ is your deliverer, Christian. Second reason why Christ alone can bear our hopes. Second reason, he is our righteousness. He is our righteousness, 
Christ not only does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, Christ is for us what we could never be in ourselves. Christ is for us what we could never be in ourselves. He is our very righteousness. This is what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. Christ is our righteousness. The Bible says again that because of sin, it is impossible for man to stand before the judgment of God in our own righteousness. What's the reason? It's because we don't have any. We need a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. This is why God the Son took on flesh, right? To live the righteous life that we could not and then to die the death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He is the righteous one. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3.18. What does it say? Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 1.19. He was the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish or spot referring to all of the Old Testament sacrifices, which points to the final sacrifice, that is Jesus. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. 1 John 3.5, in him there is no sin. And as the righteous one who dies on the cross as our righteous sacrifice, he now calls all to find rest in him. To abandon every single one of our moral efforts to earn righteousness as if we could, but yet we still try, to abandon all of that and to find our righteousness in Jesus. Thus all who repent of their sins and believe they are what? Justified, declared righteous by God. And in this justification, we are forgiven of our sin. We can stand before God the Father on account of all of Jesus' works. We are reconciled to our Creator in His love. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that even though God sees us as sinners who still sin, yet He sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. We're clothed with His righteousness. And in all of this, not by any works of our own, but according to His grace through faith in Christ alone. Again, if you're exploring Christianity and you identify yourself as a non-Christian, I hope it's clear to you why Bible-believing Christians here and at other churches love Jesus. It's because through Him we have a Savior. Not a Savior King who delivers only to then tyrannize, but a Savior King who gives of Himself for my security, for my safety in His blood. And the salvation in Him can be yours if you give up living for yourselves and your own kingdoms and your own righteousness, and if you repent of your sins and believe, you will be saved. Anyone and everyone who repents of their sins and, be, and believes on him will, in fact, be saved. If you have any questions about this, let me encourage you to look to the friend who brought you and ask them after the service, what, tell me more about this gospel. Tell me more about this Jesus. I'm going to be standing right here after service. Come and ask me any questions. I'll be happy to talk to you more about this. But know this, Jesus promises rest from our own sin and our own moral struggles for righteousness, as if we could get any, if we repent of our sins and believe. Because of who Christ is and what he has done and the righteousness that he provides us, we as Christians boast and we hope in the righteousness of Jesus Christ despite our very own sinfulness. Thirdly, we can hope in Jesus because His Spirit empowers us to follow His example. Third, His Spirit empowers us to follow His example. Certainly, while we as Christians await the return of Jesus, we know from God's Word that this life is still a spiritual battle. It's what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. And it is a battle, friends, to know the Lord and to behold His loving character in Christ as He has revealed Himself in His Word. 
Remember, guys, the, the devil will try and bring you down by casting doubt on God's character, seeking to cause confusion in your minds about who this God is, get you to be dissatisfied with God, get you to mistrust God, get you to abandon Him, and so worship yourself. Given that is the case, we need then to make every single effort to know and see God rightly according to His Word, and then stay intimately acquainted with Him and His love for you in Jesus. Thank God that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us and helps us do this. So if you are a born-again Christian, you have the Spirit. You no longer have a, a heart of stone. You have a heart of flesh. We have the, new, the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, and our desires begin to change. We start loving the things that God loves, hating the things that God hates. What are you doing then on a daily basis to stay intimately acquainted with the Lord and to seek what it means to walk in the Spirit? Let me encourage you here. Make a point to read and meditate on the Word daily. Make a point to read and meditate on the Word daily. These are like the highways that God has given us that we are to get on. And in getting on, we then have fellowship with God and grow to know Him more. In terms of Bible reading, if it's possible, let me encourage you guys uh, to read the Scripture that is going to be preached on next week. Read the passage that's going to be preached on next week. And in doing so, you ready your hearts for the Word of God every single Lord's Day where the Spirit goes out in power along with His Word, and we are conformed more to the image of His Son. Now, if you don't have that information in terms of what's being preached next week, let me encourage you to read the passage of Scripture that was just preached. So in your devotions this week, go ahead and read Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. And then as you interact with others during the week, you can chat about what you've been learning and meditating on and everything else. It's a great and obvious way to fix your mind on Jesus and help be satisfied in Him, to know Him more, to see how your beloved Savior has worked in history to fulfill all of His promises according to His steadfast love. Now, the more you know that, when you find yourself in your own wilderness, so to speak, it'll be so much easier to recount the Word of God and His works of love in the past, especially His work of love in Christ to you. In terms of Scripture memorization, here, let me encourage you to memorize Scripture, which, is, which has been a huge blessing in my life. Of course, this isn't just cramming memory verses into our minds, but meditating on and praying over the Word of God into our minds and into our hearts. This is exactly what we've been learning in the ACE class in biblical counseling, which has been excellent, by the way. You can ask Dan and others who have been attending that class more of what that means. So let me encourage you guys to get some friends together to, and encourage one another in these things. You can get the app Fighter Verses. You can literally pull out your phone and download the app Fighter Verses. It's something that our family goes through in the morning. You can work through various verses with your friends, with your family, and be meditating on God's promises and His faithfulness to fulfill them in Christ. It is doing this, His Word, memorizing, reading, dwelling on, meditating on, along with other things that will secure your heart to your Father. So that even in the difficulty, you will never forget how good God has been, how good He is now, and how good He will be in Jesus, the righteous one, who has promised, Christian, that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Christ, the righteous one, is our deliverer. He is our righteousness, and He is our example. He is our hope and can bear all of our hopes, as He, being the righteous one, is the only one, the only all-sufficient Savior, the God-man. 
And as we, as you, Christian, fight the fight of faith that He has called you to, He calls us to look to Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as Pastor Kenny pointed us to in Hebrews chapter 4, He is one who identifies with you. There's such comfort and freedom and confidence in that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and because of his great work on the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you there is rest. We ask, God, that you would help us fight that you would grant us the strength of Jesus so that we might fight for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are the all-powerful one. We praise you because you are the all-gracious one and you have so forgiven us of our sins. You, Lord, are the strong one, strong enough to defeat sin, death, and Satan as you died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. In your resurrection, Lord, we know that there is resurrection to new life for His people. Lord, we know that You promise so much for Your people. We pray, Lord, that we would know, even right now, more joy in Christ, more comfort in Christ, more security in Christ, more strength and perseverance in Christ, and a greater rest in Christ. Help us, Lord, shed off all of our human efforts to to earn any idea of righteousness because you, Lord, are the righteous one. We recognize that there is no work that we can do to add to our salvation and to save ourselves because you have worked the greatest work, the final work of dying on the cross for the sins of your people. In your name we pray, amen.